happened to be friends with the guy and talk to him, you know? Yeah. 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 I really want to listen to that one. I'm trying to listen to it. Uh, yeah, we uh, we had a mention. Oh, yeah. uh, we we talked about you a little bit towards the end. Oh yeah, what was the context? Uh, we were talking about your uh, critique of Jordan Pearson's book and how we would have you on and talk about it. So. Oh snaps! Oh, right. Right. Let's do that first. <laughs> <laughs> These guys love Jordan Pearson. I I just like to I, I like I'm Canadian. I went to University of Toronto, so he was my advisor there. Oh really? I went to Ryerson. Oh really? Are you are you Canadian? Yeah, yeah, I'm Canadian. What part of Toronto are you from? Uh, Scarborough. Okay, yeah, I, I I went to U of T for like two and a half years, and I flunked out because I was selling Amway soap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I just went to Amway's headquarters in Grand Rapids. Oh really? Yeah. Was it was, sick? It was huge. They're, they're Dude, making Amway is no joke, man. Yeah, big time. But but did you well, know that Amway has no the or the people in Grand Rapids have no idea what a pyramid scheme Amway is? So Amway doesn't do business in Grand Rapids. Oh yeah. So oh. they don't bleep where they. Eat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Inter- that's really interesting, actually. Yeah. That's 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 kind of sick, man. I was like, a- a- Amway's probably created more millionaires in the United States than any other company in the world. Yeah, or I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what they used to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> you said it with so much confidence, dude. That's probably true. <laughs> Say it enough. Anyways, let, let, let's not waste some time. Right. Let, let's let's get this puppy yeah. started. Um, are those potato chips in the background, by the way, Mordisa? I'll say it again. Are those potato chips in the background? Uh, no, there's an AC running, though. I could turn it off. Don't no, that's cool. It's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, you're in Texas, right? It's like 120 degrees down there. Oh, no, I'm in New York. Oh, oh you're in New York. Oh, yo, we'll be there on Friday. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's yeah, like, we're... I don't want to meet these guys. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are they... Actually, I'm in Texas. <laughs> are they inviting themselves to my house? <laughs> if you, you guys want to come by the office, uh, you're more than welcome. Oh yeah, that would be. Awesome. We're, yeah, we're we're actually gonna be in town. We're flying in Thursday night to. We actually doing a collaboration podcast with Safina Society. That's uh, uh, Doctor Shadiel Mastery's podcast. Oh yeah, right, right. So we come in Thursday night, and then like I think our flight arrives like one a.m. in Newark. We're staying in Central Jersey, <laughs> but we'll take the train up probably on Friday to New York. They don't have anything planned for us on Friday. We don't do any recording till Saturday, so we're just gonna like uh-huh. chill. I I I gotta buy some uh, sneakers and like sweatpants. Yeah. So I gotta go uh, how, many, how many guys are you coming? Three of us. Uh, if you want, on Friday night, we do a zikr uh, in the city. Where at? I'm down. Like midtown. Okay. Yeah, if you guys want, you will. Yeah. All right, cool, cool. Well, yeah, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see what the. We, Sim, Sim will take your number. I yeah. sure he's got to probably got you one. You got his number or something. Yeah, I got or his something. message. Out. Yeah, so we <laughs> can like figure yeah. something out. I, I'm, I just want to. I heard Honest Shops is the spot to try out. And Joe's Pizza. Yeah, yeah, they're very good, very good spots. All right, nice. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, we're live. Yes, Assalamualaikum, Mamluk Nation. We are here with Murtaza Hussein, the journalist from the Intercept, whose work focuses on national security, foreign policy, and human rights. His work has been previously featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, and Al Jazeera English. So, um, first of all, the Intercept is like that kind of like role public publication. That is like kind of independent, right? It's like a lot of folks are into it. Um, how did you break into the, that kind of work yourself, being like a brown guy with a perceived like glass ceiling? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, because of the internet and social media, a lot of dynamics have changed. Power dynamics in the media world—they haven't completely changed, but 
people who from, you know, non-elite backgrounds and yeah, brown people and black people able to have more of a voice in the public discourse uh, just because, you know, you can't really be ignored if you're on social media, if what you're saying resonates with people. And uh, I think as a result of that, you've seen a lot of people who wouldn't have had a shot in media, if they're smart and they're able to do it, uh, getting an opportunity to take roles in publications. And I started off, I was just blogging many years ago, maybe like eight, nine years ago. And then people liked the blog and they liked the uh, stuff I was writing. And I started writing for first Salon.com and Al Jazeera English and a few other places. And then I started working with The Intercept in 2013. I knew the founders and particularly Glenn. And uh, yeah, so it's been about five years as a reporter there. And uh the place has really grown in that time. Well, I really w was um, looking forward to this conversation because, you know, growing up in in the 90s, we had like people like Chomsky that we were looking up to as kids in terms of having independent uh, voices in the media who are critiquing, you know, the various ideologies that were prevalent at that time, capitalism and, and um, communism and, and all the different isms that were going on. And... I think The Intercept is kind of along that vein. It's kind of an extension of uh, people like Chomsky who were uh, independent-minded and are critiquing uh, the world. And, and some will say, you know, you're, you're critiquing it from a leftist perspective, but I think um, it does, just reading your articles and, and The Intercept's articles in general, I think they do a pretty good job of being balanced. Yeah, I think it definitely has the image is one that's decidedly leftist. But I think that if you read uh, the stuff we publish, there really is quite a bit of ideological diversity. I wouldn't say we have anybody who's far right uh, in the American sense of the term. But uh, I think that there is quite a healthy debate that takes place on the site. And a lot of the reporting is not necessarily ideological it's just reporting it's investigative reporting uh, from which people can draw conclusions uh, that they like and we have some people actually you know they are deemed to be sort of right uh, some people who you know write regularly on American US politics they have iconoclastic positions and uh, maybe you can call them right but you could say that they're anti-establishment and uh yeah, I, I would say that I wouldn't want to be a publication that's just a leftist publication, quote unquote, because yeah. you don't want to be ideological. You want to be interested in truth and growing and, uh, and not being wedded to any orthodoxies, whatever yeah. they are. You should just be equal. Yeah. So, like, the fact that you said you're interested in truth, that I assume then you would have some <laughs> pro Trump people on your staff. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say that. Don't listen to him. He. Some people might say that, but I, I wouldn't say that. I don't think I don't want to. I mean, I don't know. No. It's hard to say. I, 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 I don't subscribe to, you know, the idea that you necessarily have to have someone completely on the opposite end of uh, the spectrum to balance things out. I think, I think people, just like how you mentioned, people who are intellectually honest, those kind of people are, are people who you really want. It doesn't really have to be spectrum-based. People who are just willing to concede when they're wrong, maybe uh, not necessarily even concede, but even uh, shift their views a little bit and uh, tweak their message 
when appropriate. But you know, the, the thing I actually would say that it's a, I think these categories of left and right, they've really broken down over the last uh, decade or so. And I think that the inherited categories no longer really make much sense because if you look at the roots of these categories that come from political uh, polarity, they come from the French Revolution. They have very, very old roots. And then they took a new form during the Industrial Revolution about, uh, and they were over the division of power between different sectors in industrial society, working people, capital, etc. But now the real division society is not about that. It's about globalization. So when you see people who consider themselves far left aligning, sometimes people who consider themselves far right, it's because they're on the same side of the issue of globalization. Uh, so I think that we need to reimagine these categories because they're not, uh, they don't even make any sense. There's very few people, I think, who left who are orthodox Marxists or uh, even fascists, per se, in the old world. We just, uh, there's not really a term left for people anymore. It's just left and right is what we have with over. Along the along the time when you guys came out, I remember Vice News as well came out, and I remember you know me and Sheikh Hammer first discovering Vice News when the whole ISIS thing started, and we were thinking, holy cow, this is like independent journalism. People who are just um, indie cameramen and reporters just embedding themselves into the front lines, and you know getting just things that. Things that um, war journalists and things other journalists of the seventies and eighties would have only dreamed about, you know, having that kind of, uh, uh, you know, having that kind of a platform to display all their work, you know, because usually in the past, in the in war journalists and, and journalists in general, just only had like a column or, you know, a, a specific time slot that they can fit every all the knowledge that they acquired from their research into and now you have like things like youtube and, and the intercept and uh, podcasts where you can really explain a lot of the ideas that, that um, or a lot of the other a lot of the information that you're capturing from media or f from their research and i would just was curious in terms of how you feel people are getting more um more enlightened to a lot of the the things that are going on uh, in terms of because I know you were like tweeting a little bit about how people are so uninformed about global affairs and and it just seems like you're fighting a tide that a tide of misinformation all the time it seems like people just aren't able to catch up to the fast moving global climate or global winds of change yeah, I mean, it's in one way, the huge deluge of information is good in the sense that the news was basically centered around a few major power centers, and you can really monopolize the discourse on any one issue. I think we have the opposite problem now that there's so many different sources of information that it's very difficult for people to discern who's speaking with any authority or credibility. And it's very overwhelming. Like I am a journalist, and I find it very hard to keep up with the amount of information that there is. And I find myself actually reading more books than articles, because books, at least you can focus on one subject, and uh, you know that most likely it's went through a rigorous editing process uh, before it's published. Uh, it's 
I think I'm not actually too optimistic about the future when it comes to information because I don't know how we're going to actually find a way of narrowing down and focusing on information just so we can all have a common narrative. There's just so many articles and so many videos out there today. Everyone can live in their own alternate reality and uh, people can't do. You see things like the Syria conflict is just such a deluge of propaganda, including state propaganda, that it's almost impossible to know for the average person or even a well-intentioned person to discern truth from falsehood. And, uh, and, and I kind of think, yeah. I mean, I mean, people who are, especially the average American or the average citizen of the world and, you know, how they're caught up in the day to day, nine to five, um, them taking their news seriously and how they consume it. It seems like they just, but uh, where they're not going to be able to, uh, find the right outlet that is actually interested in truth you know and what i remember just being on a ski trip recently a couple of years ago actually and some of the guys were bored and they were like flipping through youtube and they're like oh my god look at this vice uh thing that had the, the islamic state their documentary ad i'm like dude that's actually like four years old like how, how are you just get, <laughs> catching up to this now I'm like who's this vice news and this is like a group of six or ten guys and i'm like yo man this is wow. this is kind of um old news and <laughs> it it was just was so like uh it was so shocking in the sense because people just don't really i mean you take it so you and I take it seriously, but most people just don't take the news seriously and they just uh, are kind of either b- interested in word of mouth or they're really just uh, caring about uh who other people are talking about maybe a celebrity might have endorsed uh, a certain website or something and you know, made a, an appearance on, on the website and then they'll find a, kind of find out about it. But other than that, it just seems like it's an uphill battle. But one thing yeah. I really, yeah. no, no, I, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, one thing that I sensed is that a majority of people that do uh, read the news is kind of just to uh, forget about their issues, you know, for men, especially it's kind of like their cave time, right? When they, had a hard day at work and they want to read something when they're at work and they need a break. We usually think about things so our problems, you know, we minimize our problems. And whatever outlet that is that kind of gives us uh, a distraction of from our life, that's from our lives, that's kind of what I see not only just with the men, but people in general, you know, they, they basically forget. And it's kind of like an outlet, like you said, it's well, an it's, outlet it's, for it's them. It's an outlet. It's like, I think... It's almost well, entertainment I for know them. You, it's an outlet and they're not really concerned about truth to the level of truth that we're, we're talking about. They're more concerned with, okay, now I'm kind of informed what's happening. Okay, I'm it, good. But it's not just uh, about getting information. I think a lot of people just see that stress. They see a mountain of problems. Oh, yeah. That's I know, sure like, too. just flipping through Facebook's feed or Twitter's feed and, and just being stressed out about all the different things that are happening. No, you're right. And I always hear people say, like, man, I'm done reading the news. I gave up. I yeah, hear people say that all the horrific. time. It's horrific. Like, yeah. some of the horrific stories that you hear about, just um, brutal oppression around the world, and you're just like, what the hell is wrong with people? You know, yeah. how could uh, one human be like that to another human? And I can understand some people willfully not paying attention to it in that respect, but... Um, what what kind of uh, publications do you read other than your own, Murza? Uh That's a good question. I kind of 
finding new new publications these days and finding people with really smart blogs and just random things I never picked up before. But I really like uh, I read the Intercept. I read uh, the major publications like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Uh, Jacobin is a good left wing publication. Uh, but I don't really have any ones that I check regularly. I just kind of see what people who I trust are sharing, uh, and I can tell if it's a reputable site or not. But then also I just read a lot of books. I read most of my reading is books, probably like 70, 80% of it. Uh, I don't read that many articles at all. Uh, just because I find like the screen to be distracting and I want, don't want to have so much screen time. And I find when you read books about any subject, you really get much more fuller understanding and your mind has to focus on one subject for quite a while. And when pages, there's no notifications going off in the background, it's distracting. It's just you with the book. Uh, and I just, yeah, I just try to read books constantly. Yeah. Uh, because unlike articles too, you tend to remember every book you read and the lessons tend to sink in quite a bit more. Yeah, I agree. I think also the problem is when like you say, you read articles and it's like your mind's spinning in three di- in 30 different directions because like I was trying to read an article. I was at, like, was it today about like Cristiano Ronaldo going to Juventus? And it was like, it should be like five minute read, but it took me like half an hour because I had like five other windows open, <laughs> right? And you're clicking back and forth and then you forgot what you read. And it's just like, I mean, it's just like whatever. Just, you know, you, you know, whereas I was actually out in, um, my wife and I were on vacation a couple of weeks ago, and we were in an area where I didn't even have like internet. So mm-hmm. I was like, I had the, I had no choice but to read a book. And then he's mm-hmm. like, you actually, but I actually remember, and I got a lot more depth out of that reading than any kind of like article, even on the same subject. Oh, this is when you went to Yellowstone, right? Yeah. How was that? I missed the World Cup uh, semifinal, so I was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But um, you know, one thing that I was curious about is, uh, you know, uh, do you do any? In pardon my ignorance, do you do any in- investigative reporting too? Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. So, one one thing that I was always curious about: investigative reporters usually have. Not only are they what what I've witnessed from from them is that they're very well versed about what's happening in the world, but they seem to know a lot about history and they're able to link the information that they read about contemporary issues with history, right? So that that's the, the question is like investigative reporters, a lot of people depend upon them, right? And they get a, a big following. So mm-hmm. like what is what type of content do you read and would you suggest for someone to read to get a good picture, uh, not only of, of what you would do but as, as your profession, but to be well-informed, you know, to be on that same track of being informed properly, right? Aside from websites and articles, I'm talking about like books, books ta- specific. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. And regarding like global affairs? Everything, or? like everything as far as linking, you know, contemporary issues to to books that, are, that you guys may link to historically, right? Because every time I see an investigative reporter, uh, they always bring history into it too because you have to convince people that, hey, this happened before. Right, not only in our right. near past, but a long time ago, and it's just repeating itself um, to build a strong right. case. Right. You know, um, so what? Like, is it only politics that you read up on? Is there any other books that sharpen those skills too? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Uh, I absolutely majority of my reading is history. It's not even contemporary politics. So in the last couple of years, especially in the time the intercepts existed. And even before that, there's the U.S. has been fighting this quote-unquote war on terrorism. 
uh, and this has taken place overwhelmingly in Muslim countries. Yep. And it's given rise to all sorts of movements and groups and responses. Uh, and, you know, the big one is people's mind the last couple of years with ISIS. So when this came about, as you know, as a Muslim person, you're very shocked that a group of people who call themselves Muslims could do all these things, which all, everything you're taught growing up is totally antithetical to the values. So I really took it very seriously to try to understand and unpack the roots of these sort of ideologies and to understand Islam better, understand revolutionary movements better, understand uh, the roots of, you know, the collapse of state structures and Muslim world to how, how they give rise to sort of uh, these sort of non-state actors. So, so much of my study has been about that type of history, history of modernity in the Muslim world. Uh, and there's so many books that are just invaluable to understanding that. Uh, Pankaj Mishra's books about uh, post-colonialism and uh, Whose radical books, I'm movements. Sorry. Can, can you mention that? Because I'm actually writing these down. Um, oh, yeah. You know, actually, I have this app in addition to Twitter, I got this app called Goodreads, and I save all my books that I read on there with reviews of the books. Oh, cool. So, yeah, I can send you a list of the books I really yeah. recommend on the subject. That'd yeah, I'll right. put in the, the, the show notes. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, cool. Because cool. It's sometimes, so, like, when I'm confused about something, I just need a place to start. And sometimes when you go through websites, you just end up reading so much, either you don't remember it or you didn't read everything of all of what you were supposed to read, right? So you just chase yeah, a whole bunch yeah. of little details. People, you no context. You can't yeah. really understand what you're what you're reading in full. No, and that's but, why I'm uh, glad we're having this conversation, man, because I really want to switch to just reading, you know, like hardcover and softcover books and kind of just not a major hiatus from reading uh, you know, on the internet, but I really need to take a break from that because the more reading you do, the, you feel like you're just, just not, you're not filling the pieces in properly, you know? And at the end of like a year or two years of reading, there's there's not a solid connection. Yeah, at the same time though, don't you feel like there's we have to like kind of you know pick and choose what we're reading as far as like what subject matter? Like, yeah, it, yeah, because otherwise you might because th- th- think about a subject that you really know about, right? And think about like what it took to get expertise in that subject, right? Yeah. It's not you can't do everything, right? You're right. You, you know, true. and that's uh, such an important point you you brought up because I remember when I was young, so many things just kind of went over my head. I know, especially reading like uh, Chomsky, it's very heavy reading. It's yeah, very and, and For a teenager, a lot of stuff doesn't just resonate well, but you know that so many of your friends or people you trust in the media have uh, used him as a reference, so you're just kind of powering through it just because of your interest or your, your passion for that, right? And I think um, eventually it permeates into your mind. It, you might not understand a whole lot of it. A lot of the criticisms that we've had for our podcast in terms of some of the things that we discuss related to um, philosophy and and some of the the great thinkers of the past, a lot of those topics I've been told that are, are literally going over people's heads and they just can't under- wrap their minds around it because they've never thought about things in such a deep level mm. uh, throughout their lives and they just can't begin to do that at such a late age, I guess. But what I, what I wanted to also ask you about was uh, Jeremy Scahill because Sheikh Heimer brought up investigative journalists and that guy was the first guy I knew about from The Intercept before you hopped on and have you met the guy because he's somebody who 
me and Shahamir, we saw his war, uh, his documentary, yeah, Dirty, Dirty Wars. Wars yeah. Sam introduced me to Dirty Wars, and I'm a high school teacher, and we have a contemporary issues class. So I just showed him, t- showed that video a few years ago to all my students. We had an exam on it, so we we really like on that level what Intercept is doing and with Jeremy Scahill and obviously yourself. But Jamie's got his own podcast too. Have you heard it, Murtza? Yeah, yeah, of course. So Jeremy, we all work in the same office. His podcast is actually recorded uh, in, in his little room that he has in the office, uh, the recording studio. Uh, is this the same yeah, office like, you were inviting us to in New York? <laughs> yes. Yeah, oh, dang. Okay. Uh, you know what? Uh, invitation accepted. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm not 100% sure if he's in town right now. No, we're uh, going there for you, not for him, bro. I just want to sit on the same chair he does. I just want to sit on the same chair he does. No, I love the guy, man. That When no, you no. see Dirty Wars, you see a man who's passionate. That's just... Yeah. You can't fake that. You, there's, no, there's no other way of saying... I mean, what he did was like incredibly brave because, uh, you know, the whole unrolicky thing was just something that is um, really, I mean, getting behind his family and people, you, despite your disagreements with him as a person and what his ideological leanings are, of course, but, you know, the the way he defended his family. Is everything okay, Mursa? Sounds like both. Yeah, something I heard like some crackling. Are you getting oh, your back cracked by a chiropractor right now? Water oh. <laughs> I thought you had a chiropractor. You're at a chiropractor visit right now. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I'm just joking. D- just get used to it. We're going to make a lot of jokes, so don't mind. So, uh, what's Dirty I've never heard of this. You've never, you heard, never heard, of heard of Dirty Wars, bro? Oh, man. It's about it's on, Vietnam? How dare no, you? It's about the, what he just, uh, what Musa mentioned. Musa, why don't you explain to Mahin what Dirty Wars is about? Uh, Dirty Wars is a book and a documentary that was made by Jeremy a few years ago. Uh, I think it was nominated for an Oscar, the documentary was. It's just a, it's a history of the war on terrorism or the shadow wars that have been fought. And a significant component of it is about the story of Anwar al-Awlaki, who was a famous imam in the United States, who uh, later went on to have a very uh, troubled history with the government. Then he was killed in a drone strike that was ordered under Obama, and his son was killed in a subsequent strike as well. And he was very controversial because he was an American citizen. Many people were killed by drones, but uh, it was a big deal because uh, it was not generally accepted that the U.S. president has a right to order the execution of, uh, yeah, without a, due of a citizen without trial. Yeah, and then his exactly. son a few weeks later. And then his daughter recently. Yeah. Right? His daughter a year ago, I mean. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. And, but he also, have you heard of Blackwater? The book Blackwater? He wrote that same book too. Just look it yeah. up. You watch yeah. it on Netflix tonight. You'll be yeah, happy. Yeah, I think it is available on Netflix. So if anyone's um, interested, make sure you check it out on Netflix. What, Dirty Wars is on Netflix? Yeah. Sick. I'll check it out. Uh, you know, one of the main questions that a lot of our listeners are always messaging us is, hey, have someone on who can kind of explain some of the entanglement of alliances that are happening in the Middle East. Help give them a brief outline. We're not going to go through the historical thing, but l- let's uh, let's have Mursa explain a little bit about why um, Qatar and Saudi are at odds with each other. Where does Turkey fit into this? Where does Iran fit into it? And Egypt, some of the major players, and and why why do they all why are they all mad at each other? And why is poor Yemen getting the hell bombed out of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the rivalry between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, you know, in 2013, there was a wave of revolutions in the Middle East 
known at that time as the Arab Spring. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a monarchy, and it's very much invested in the status quo. They didn't want any changes in the region. They didn't want their friends in Egypt or elsewhere to be overthrown. Uh, so they really invested a lot in holding up those dictatorships and trying to keep them stable because the way things were, it was to their benefit. The Qatar also was a monarchy. And it's part of the same regional alliance as the Saudi Arabia, as the GCC. But they took a very different tack with regard to the Arab Spring, and they supported uh, the revolutionary movements, including the Muslim Brotherhood, which is uh, Saudi Arabia is absolutely hostile to because they view them as a threat to their own establishment. And, you know, there's been tensions over the Arab Spring ever since. And then when the last couple of years, especially when Trump came into office, uh, the Saudis have really seen this opportunity to settle settle score with Qatar and punish them. And essentially they want them to surrender and surrender any independent foreign policy. They want them to close Al Jazeera, which is owned by the Qatari government. Uh, so that's sort of the roots. It's the roots. It's a conflict between a status quo power, Saudi Arabia, and a power which wants to, or supportive of uh, revising the, power, the dynamics in the region, including in favor of more towards Islamist parties like the Brotherhood, uh, which is Qatar. So that's sort of where that falls into place. And Turkey is very much aligned with Qatar, actually. They also, the rule party in Turkey is, you know, aligned or in a sense, it's uh, on the same spectrum as the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, they also are very much uh, more supportive of uh, the opposition movements of the Arab Spring. In Yemen, uh, it's sort of a different situation. There's a civil war in Yemen and Saudi Arabia is intervening on one side of the civil war. And... Uh, there was a conflict there before Saudi Arabia got involved, but Saudi Arabia's involvement along with the U.S. and the U.K. has certainly exacerbated the crisis there. And uh, they've been bombing Yemen for a number of years now in a, what seems to be a pretty futile attempt to end the conflict uh, in their own favor. But, uh, you know, this is a very upsetting time. Like the Muslim world, and the Middle East especially, a lot of the countries have gone through complete catastrophes. And uh, Syria is another example uh, and uh, it doesn't seem like it's ending anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, Syria is just such a mess. I mean, I remember when the Syrian crisis broke out, I was, you know, I was so familiar with, you know, all the players in uh, in the fighting. I knew, like, battalions and stuff. There were entire subreddits on Reddit that were created just for keeping track of, um, uh, of, the, of the conflict. I mean, there were just... It was so fascinating to see in the sense that you saw average Americans rooting for battalions they had like their own like team that they're kind of rooting for even though they had like really no vested interest in who actually came out up front there definitely did it. there were some people who were but um it, it was just fascinating to see average americans kind of and a lot of the people weren't even muslim that were they were they were just guys that were very very curious about syria because you know of, but, of the situation but what's so what's so amazing is that all these major players are pretty much dead that were alive uh, a couple of years ago, people mm. who were uh, common names that you would use uh, when you're talking about the, the, the crisis over there, all those leaders are dead. Mm. And then the, the, their, um, the succession, the line of succession has probably reached their fourth or fifth. And those people are dying. And it just seems like 
who is, when is where is the end? Because it seems like you know after stri- airstrikes after airstrikes, they thought that they could just you know kill off the heads of the the revolution over there, and it's not going to end. And it just seems like it's such a complicated mess over there. Yeah, it is. It's just a big tragedy for the people of the Syria and the region generally. Um, I mean, I, I'm pretty I, convinced that it, if it wasn't for ISIS, they would have for sure had the, the entirety of Syria, the rebels, right? Yeah, you know, it's so hard to do a counter, counterfactual history of it, but, yeah. uh, you know, so many things happened. There's so many, uh, you know, the whole world got involved uh, in different ways. And uh, definitely... The emergence of terrorist groups in that conflict changed the dynamic and also the narrative of what was happening. Well, yeah, a lot of people just were just so amazed that the Americans didn't take uh, a stronger stance and uh, allow the Russians and the Syrians to um, to take a more of a a foothold in the Middle East by getting themselves involved in there. And the Americans are kind of like, you know, well, we don't want to support one side too much. We just kind of Let's uh, make it a stalemate and give enough weapons to the rebels so that they don't get easily trounced. Yeah, and I think that some of the confusion, uh, people don't realize, you know, what the benefits are in this proxy war, you know, between America and Russia. And, uh, you know, in, in, in easy terms, in layman terms, how would you simplify that to somebody who says you know i hear people say that all the time you know what benefit does america have supporting the rebels and russia supporting you know bashar uh what what is it beneficial what what's what's the benefit here is it because america is siding siding with saudi and they have to prove this i mean what what how do we make sense of all that well i think from the u.s perspective they were totally fine to see everyone all sides killing each other they didn't see, weren't very invested in either side. And uh, they had a hostile relationship with Assad's allies. And at the same time, they didn't really like the rebels either. So what they did was exactly what you said. They fed enough weapons to the conflict to keep it going forever, pretty much, uh, on slow burn. But not enough that any side would win. Uh, and Russia for all the brutalities and cruelties of what they did getting involved in the conflict and completely imperialist intervention uh, that's killed tens of thousands of people, they did pick a side. They picked one side decisively and backed them until they won. The United States did not do that. They never picked a side definitively. They made rhetorical support to the opposition and they provided some nominal support, again, just to keep the killing going, but not enough that anyone would win. So I find that the U.S. role was extremely malign. I think that Obama bears a lot of responsibility for that. Whether it was part of a conscious plan or it just ended up happening out of uh, just a drift, uh, it's hard to say. But, you know, they made sure a war continued for years and years with no winner. And that's a recipe for deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. It's exactly what we saw. Yeah. Destroyed. It's a disaster. It's become a disaster. What Syria, uh, what used to be Syria is, you know, Allah alam is ever, if it's ever going to be the same in the future. And, you know. I mean, you think about a city like Halab, Aleppo, had so much 
history and, and you know the, the the those marketplaces were known throughout the world for having such a strong tradition and it's just bombed to nothing now you yep. um right. and then we have what what's going on in egypt now egypt is um still with cc and cc's just seems like um um, he's getting some support from the Saudis and, and the Americans in terms of propping up their economy and making sure that uh, there's not a, another collapse. But it seems like his his regime is dependent on how well their economy is doing. And as soon as um, the Egyptians experience another economic collapse, yep. I, seem, I think his regime is going to go with it. Um, I just don't see the Egyptians... Um, you know, sit, sitting out for a long period of uh, economic turmoil. I think that's what really gets people into action. I think once uh, you can't feed your family, yeah. people are going to go on the streets. So I don't see that as a long-term uh, regime. At least. It seems like there's a lot of bandage work happening in Egypt, man. That's what it seems like. Just hanging by strings and just, you know. What's your assessment? What's up? Yeah, you know, it's uh, Egypt is one country that uh, it doesn't really have a history of mass political violence. There's been a lot of violence in terms of incidents and uh, you know, out certain outbreaks of conflict, but not they never had any internal civil war uh, like we've seen in Syria, other places, and Egyptians tend to be quite proud of that actually. So I, I'm not sure that you are going to see that. Uh, but I think you could see a, a country which is gradually immiserated more and more over time and uh, outbreaks of unrest or vocalized insurgencies like you see in the Sinai. Uh, but, I, you know, also people have a very high capacity for suffering in a lot of places. And you think that something's not sustainable and it just exists for a long time. And the Soviet Union, uh, you know, extremely repressive, extremely poor place, it lasted for almost a century. Yeah, uh, a lot of places, just you know, people South Asia, you know, there's incredible poverty in South Asia, uh, and until very recently, they never really seemed like there was any way out of that. Uh, it just continued. So I'm not uh, yeah, confident things are going to change necessarily. And sometimes when people are poor, they're even less able to resist. That's true. That's true. Um, I'm wondering um, what's next with the. And I think the way I kind of decipher the Middle East is I, I look at America on one side and the Russians on another side, and and you can critique this if you want, but I'm kind of looking at America is using uh, the Saudis, Egypt, and uh, Turkey more or less as their proxies in the Middle East, and um, Russia utilizing Iran and maybe more or less Qatar in in some respect even though Qatar denies it and says that we're not we're not part of anyone is is that the correct lens to view the middle east as as you know Russia on one side of the table and America on the other side and they're kind of playing chess with those with these countries you know actually i don't think so i think that uh, there's this sense that the us and russia are in this big conflict i don't think that's the case at all i think that they're there's a putting forward an image of this really fierce conflict, and they're certainly speaking like that. But if you look at their actions, they're completely cooperating. They're cooperating to carve Syria up and end the conflict in the way which they're both satisfied with. 
they are negotiating over what to do about Iran. Uh, I think that really all these countries, there's just two imperial powers which are working together and dividing them up in stages. Uh, I don't think that there's a big but, conflict with them. So that, that is uh, a fantastic way of looking at it because that's was my secondary um, analysis. I thought that maybe they're everyone's cooperating and they're just creating conflicts or maybe not just controlled conflicts to sell weapons to um, rival neighbors in the countries um, and, uh, you know, selling a, a product to a country saying that, hey, this is for your well-being and your self-interest and your self-preservation. I think that's a better um, way to sell, you know, weapons that you don't really need and could be that money could be spent better. Yeah, they both support uh, Israel. They both support uh, Egypt. They both support uh, they're they're in good terms with all these countries. They basically have the same end result in mind for Syria now. There's a little bit of division over Iran, which they're trying to sort out now. Uh, no, I don't. They're absolutely just working together to carve up the Middle East, and this region has been carved up by imperial powers before Russia and the UK. Now it's U.S. and Russia, a U.S. and Russia. Yeah, I don't see uh, any conflict there, and I think that this whole thing is uh, when you strip away the rhetoric and look at the actions, it's just uh, it's a farce. It's not what's really going on. It's being uh, what I think is, is is it's being driven by the military-industrial complex, right? Um, the sale of weapons throughout the world is, you know, something that the American economy depends heavily on and I don't think it's stressed enough in media um, yeah it, it could be stressed by publications such as yours but in terms of mass media people just don't realize how dependent the American economy is on the sale of weapons to the world yeah absolutely and you look at the countries like Saudi Arabia they're the biggest arms purchasers in the world uh, and even small countries like uh Small these Gulf countries, uh, UAE, uh, Qatar, etc. They buy a lot of arms from the U.S. and from Europe and from Russia, but they don't actually use these arms generally. They don't like Saudi Arabia doesn't fight wars itself, uh, except for now in Yemen to some degree uh, as an air force. But they're by purchasing weapons in such huge amounts, they're making themselves economically indispensable to the U.S. and its allies. So, for instance, if your economy relies on Saudi Arabia buying X number of missiles every year and spending X billion of dollars, you're going to be invested in wanting to defend Saudi Arabia's security because you want them to keep buying weapons from you. And weapons are really a vanity purchase. When they buy them, they're either going to be used to kill somebody or they're going to just sit in a warehouse somewhere forever. And they're very expensive. They're not, you can't use them to build your economy or build your society. They just sort of, uh, they're a waste or they're used for some horrible purpose. Yeah. So, you know, by buying these weapons, by Saturday Navy is a regular purchaser of U.S. weapons, it makes people in the U.S., U.S. elites at least, very, very attached to ensuring that Saudi Arabia is stable and secure because we need it to keep uh, being an outlet for uh, these lethal goods. Gotcha. So what's the scoop on, uh, I know a lot of people have asked us too about uh, UAE. I don't think we've talked about UAE today yet, but like there's that alliance between Saudi and UAE and their boycott of Qatar, and then also this dilemma of, you know, 
some Muslim scholars in in the West like being pro UAE, promoting UAE, etc. Yeah, I'm really disappointed to see some scholars embracing the UAE so publicly because you know, if a Muslim scholar, your primary goal should be to commitment to morality and speaking truth to power. Uh, and the UAE is a very repressive government, and they're involved in extremely repress- supporting very repressive policies around the Middle East. Uh, and people, people I really respect seem to be very close to them and very aligned with them. And I'm sure I kind of understand in some way why, because the UAE is in conflict with the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, these scholars, a lot of them are also our lead movements, which are in conflict with the Muslim Brotherhood. And in a way that makes sense. But then you also have to look at the bigger picture. What kind of policies is the UAE supporting? What's their position on, let's say, Israel-Palestine? Are they supporting dictatorships that are committing atrocities against innocent people? Uh, and you have to ask yourself whether it's the right thing to do to endorse such a government. And hopefully you would ask it to change its ways before endorsing it or, you know, guarantee some sort of uh, reform. But we haven't really seen that as far as we can tell. We've just seen people willing to lend their names and credibility to government, which uh, in many ways has deeply troubling policies. So if the issue is their opposition to the Muslim Brotherhood, then how come we don't see them like, like, tote, like you know, carrying the black, the banner of Saudi as well? Uh, I think the UAE is the one that's trying to cultivate these people, and the Saudis have their own different religious establishment, uh, sort of more of the Salafi Wahhabi establishment that uh, is a very close alliance with the ruling family. They don't want to patronize these other types of scholars. You call them Sunni traditional scholars. The UAE is not a Wahhabi. They don't have a Wahhabi establishment or a Salafi establishment. They have a very flexible ideological establishment. They like to think of themselves as modernizers, too. So they want to modernize enlightened Islam, which is a completely fine thing to want. But uh, what they're doing is they're trying to use Islam as a tool of soft power. And if you're a scholar, your loyalty should not be to any government. It should be to what's right and what's wrong, or against what's wrong. Uh, so, I mean, you know, maybe they know what they're doing. Maybe they have it very well thought out. This is something that, uh, they've, you know, it's part of a plan for what they think is best, but it looks troubling because the UAE is certainly involved in, uh, supporting some of the nastiest regimes around today. And they've also been involved in throwing American Muslims under the bus. The UAE designated CARE as a terrorist group and the UAE official went on Fox News to talk about that. So they're completely fine with Islamophobia and uh, allying with right-wing Americans uh, who totally are hostile, you know, hostile is putting it lightly towards Muslims and Islam. So, you know, why a Muslim scholar would go and support such a government, uh, it's really questionable. Uh, And I I hope that... Why don't you talk to your people, (laughs) Sheikh? (laughs) But so, like, do you think it's possible that they think it's... Like has a potential that you know they're you know thinking that it might be have the infrastructure or whatnot or economy to like be an ideal Muslim land, so they're trying to like get their foot in the door now. I don't know what they're. I mean, who knows? But like, um, yeah, I mean, it's possible. It's definitely. But if that's what they think, they should let everybody else know because everyone else is very 
uh, surprised and wondering what's going on, right? Yeah, uh, and the thing is, if you like question it, they're like, "Oh, you're not having, you're not people are not like some of the fanboys are like, you're not having proper adub." I mean, some of these scholars are like, I mean, I love some of these these guys, right? But so I don't really speak on the issue publicly, um, <laughs> and I'm not gonna like offer a commentary here or there. But like when I observe people like criticize them, people jump out of like, "You're not having adub. This brother's done so much for this people, etc. For the ummah, yada yada yada." Oh, and yeah. So they're not, I mean, they shouldn't be above reproach, even though they've done a tremendous amount of good because for this specific stance. Yeah, be careful of that adab card that's always used when whenever you're making a good point. <laughs> <laughs> that adab card has popped up like for the for non Muslims who are listening, it's adab means like manners and uh, etiquette and discourse. Yeah, and you know the, the thing is, they have done a lot, and they are really admirable people. So you want to give them the benefit of the doubt and understand and. I hope there is an explanation, and I hope there's some sort of context. Uh, I think a lot of it is, man, that everyone has their own sense of what authority is and what they feel is the best type of authority, right? So whether it's you know on a political level or even like scholars, there is a certain type of authority, and when someone openly challenges them, they see it as some type of lack of, you know, the the only way that they can make it burn is say, hey, you're not having adab. When you may be saying it nicely, you're just you know not agreeing with them. And, with, and you know, also, there's, authority. there's this concept, the traditional Islamic concept of political uh, political philosophy is, is among Islamic scholars, is that you support order, you support the ruler, and you only call for a revolution or a change in the most extreme circumstance when the religion itself is being threatened. And historically, the form of government that existed in the Muslim world was monarchies or dynasties, uh, they were not republics. They were not uh, these sort of new kind of democracies or things that modern movements like the Muslim Brotherhood wants to put in place. They are very modern. So in that sense, supporting the UAE is not – it makes sense Islamically in a way you could say because there's this famous quote by Imam al-Ghazali, which is that – uh, a thousand years of tyranny are better than a single day of anarchy. So maybe the UAE is a tyranny, but they feel that's better than anarchy, which is something you may see in, let's say, Syria. Because some of the Sunni traditional scholars in Syria also supported the regime, even though the regime was viewed by other people as heretic and tyrannical. They supported it because the traditional political philosophy of Islam is very much towards order and towards stability and not in favor of uh, anything that could lead to upheaval. So when you see them supporting the UAE, they're supporting the status quo and their Islamic scholars, and that's sort of something that Islamic scholars have traditionally done. There's very, very few examples of uh, The thing is, though, isn't it like, because it's unique, though, because these aren't like Emiratis. They're not Emirati scholars, or they're not like, maybe one of them is, but like, I mean, one of them lives there. But a lot of them don't even live in the UAE, right? They, they... Well, I, I think yeah, yeah. I remember when we were talking to uh, Shadi Hamid uh, on our last episode, he was uh, the discussion came about where Sheikh Hamar was saying that when a lot of the the government apparatus had, had broken down, the scholars were really free to talk about whatever they wanted, and things like Islamic governance were being discussed freely without any fear of repercussion i think when um, when you take out the government from uh 
scholars, they're, they're able to speak more freely. I mean, you're seeing what happened to uh, Sheikh Safar al-Hawali at, in um, Saudi Arabia, right? He got uh, imprisoned and, and even Salman al-Oda, many other scholars around uh, the kingdom. I read that they were sururis, though, and they were already like Muqtadim. I knew something would, like this was going to come out of your mouth. <laughs> God. So, so these are... These are uh, government Salafi type terms that Mahin is using because he used to follow uh, government Salafis when he was younger. <laughs> um, what was that term? Sururi? What, Sururi. What does that mean? Their follower was Muhammad Surur. <laughs> Who's that? He's like some like, <laughs> I don't know, like basically some kind of ideologue who he used to be a Muslim Brotherhood kind of guy. Okay. You know, basically like, and then the offshoots of Sururi or Kutubiyah. Oh. Which is a more extreme offshoot, like Sayyid Qutub's ideology. Oh my gosh! So there's entire PDFs dedicated to this if you want. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure That's there what are. Used to read. I used to print out like I used to be. I was an engineering student. Side note, and my friends would be like, "What are you printing out? Like hundreds and hundreds of PDF pages." And uh, I'm like, "Oh, this is like a refuge. Like there was a chart I had, an entire chart of like the offshoots from from the Ikhwan, like the various offshoots." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they were like this is you're burning up your entire lab quota it's supposed to be on like statics and dynamics and thermo and you're burning it up on like PDFs from Spubs and Troid <laughs> Spubs and Troid I remember those websites that was the 90s 2000s for me yeah yeah, yeah. early 2000s anyways that was a so, so slight digression but like yeah um, you, you sorry you, so you, were, you, you were talking about the uh Sururis or no, no. <laughs> no. So, yeah. so we're kind of like dancing around the Middle East now, right? So a yeah. lot of people are saying, you know, the Palestinians should just give up and um, succumb to Israeli rule. And um, well, what are your thoughts on that? It seems like there's even Muslims, particularly in the West, are kind of talking about, you know, um, there's no there's no light at the end of the tunnel for the Palestinians and they should just bend to the will of the Israelis or, or keep getting mowed down. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I see. I thought DJ Khaled and Fozy two were going to help out the Palestinians, but that didn't really happen. <laughs> no, Fozy two. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Know, sir. I was in Israel, Palestine recently, and I was in the West bank and I can say one thing I'm very confident of that they're never going to give up. They'll never surrender and do what people are trying to pressure them to do. Right now, Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner are trying to put a gun to their head and force them to surrender and accept some humiliating ending to the conflict where they get basically nothing. They're never going to surrender. And any deal which their leaders are forced to, into making, maybe, uh, it won't be worth the paper that it's printed on. They've been fighting for 70 years for uh, the basic right to self-determination. And they put up with incredible oppression. And uh, they're such noble people and such uh, have such inner fortitude. I'm absolutely certain they won't surrender. Even given the incredible amount of oppression that's currently going on in the West Bank, and not to speak of Gaza, which is magnitude's worse, uh, they are, I, unless there's, a, until and unless there's a fair and just ending to this conflict, they're not gonna, there's not gonna be any to it. And now today, as of, actually, as of 2015, so even more so today, Palestinian Arabs are the majority between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, so the territory of Israel and the West Bank and Gaza. There are more Arabs than Israelis, uh, or more Arabs than Jews. Uh, so you can't continue with this apartheid-like situation. It's absolutely apartheid. There's no hyperbole in saying it. 
the West Bank is completely under the control of the Israeli Ministry of Defense, and people don't have any rights or any dignity or any ability to move around and live normal lives. So people in some Arab countries, they're really trying to turn the screws in the Palestinians. They want to align with Israel because they're more concerned about Iran. They're tired of this. They want to just move on. But they're not going to move on by trying to make the Palestinians commit suicide. They're not going to commit suicide. They're not going to, no matter what you do to them, they're not going to accept a deal when they have no access to Jerusalem or no access to uh, their own territory and freedom of movement and uh, basic human rights. So, you know, they can try. Mohammed bin Salman and these other people can try, but I don't think that they're going to get very far. You you seem very, very convinced. That's pretty awesome. You seem very convinced that they're not going to give up and it's, it'll go on forever. Um, what experiences have you had there that, that you have so much conviction in that? And I'm not, and I actually respect that a lot. You said it without even hesitating. But what, uh, what, what, experience have you had in Palestine or even if you want to highlight some interesting things that you experienced there but what what gives you so much conviction and the reason I'm asking let me preface I apologize let me preface by saying that the the average person that were to start reading up on Palestine Israel now they would say well the whole world really wants Palestine to have a better life Palestinians want a better life why don't they just give Israel what they want so Palestinians can have a better life, right? So that's what that's how they're trying to sell it to the Muslims too. But for you, uh, you you have another uh, side to the story. Well, I mean, they, they do need a better life. But the thing yes. is, what's being offered to them right now is not that. What's being offered to them is complete just uh, surrendering and bowing down and living forever in humiliation. If you study the history of the Palestinian National Movement, they had the opportunity to live in humiliation, bow down every day since 1947. They haven't taken it. If you go to Ramallah today, you can see on many, pretty much any short walk or drive around, you can see signs that with the names of people's villages, which were destroyed uh, during the creation of the State of Israel and then the 1967 war when many more people were made refugees, and they had the name of the village, and then underneath that, in Arabic, we will return. The entire national culture is built around mm. Jerusalem, the issue of Jerusalem and Al-Quds, and the territory of Palestine. And I've also been to Jordan. I've seen uh, in the slums around Amman the way that every single person wants nothing more than to go back to, if not Palestine, at least the, the same village, I mean, but be around the symbols of their identity, like Al-Quds and uh, Jerusalem and the land. They're not uh, going anywhere. And Jewish people were also exiles from Jerusalem for thousands of years, and they never lost the flame of going back. They go back. And now Palestinians are an exile community, which desires to go back to that place. And they're not going to accept something that uh, they're not going to give up after sacrificing so much and just say they're exhausted and surrender. They'll keep fighting for generations. The, the way people view time over there, and not just the Palestinians, is very different. They'll fight for generations to go back. And I've talked to people in Jordan who are involved in uh, movements, and we have stories about this coming out in the future. Uh, they, at the intercept, they have a very long time frame. So if we don't go back, then our kids will fight, then their kids will fight, until there's a just negotiated solution. There's no, no one's 
fighting this to the end. There needs to be a solution which gives dignity and the basic minimum requirements of the Palestinian national movement. And then there can be peace and there can be a reconciliation on all sides and uh, healing and development. I think a lot of people... Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand that even if the Palestinians completely gave up their um, their right to an independent Palestinian state and that they said, you know, OK, Israel, absorb us into your state, that still is not a, a viable option that the Israelis want to pursue. That's not... because they would be outnumbered. And that's it. So it's, it's yeah. funny to see that, like, people are saying that, oh, it's the Palestinians who are. Uh, being a, a roadblock to peace when even if, if even if they completely gave up all everything they wanted yep. and they took it off the table and they said okay you win uh, the war of attrition is over and um uh, we we succumb to your will that's still not a viable option because th- then they'll be citizens of israel and that's not something what israel wants they don't want them to have influence in their legislature and the way they they make laws and influence uh, dude i'm so glad you brought that up because they their main point is to give them such a bad experience that they leave right and they don't come back they they want them to be why would israel want to share citizenship with them and have give them possibility a possibility to empower themselves right that's what citizenship is right yeah you're giving somebody citizenship, which means that, okay, now we can talk at the table. We're the same now. If we're the same now, that means you have a possibility to achieve what I've achieved. Yeah. Right? And that's very problematic for for the Zionist regime, right? But I, I just wanted to mention one more thing, man, because you you recently went to Palestine, you said. And is, is this the first time you went, or have you went many times? No, it was the first time, actually. So out of all of the experiences you had, what is something that highlights that experience for you? I mean, there's just so many different things. It's, uh, you know, if you go to Jerusalem, which I think people should do, actually, because the Palestinians in East Jerusalem, they're really in a very difficult situation. They're, uh, the Israeli military is everywhere. There's a lot of poverty. They're not allowed to build houses or expand uh, the houses that they have. Everyone's trying to push them out. Uh, there's a lot of bullying. There's... You know, their economic situation is very bad, especially compared to West Jerusalem. And when I was there, especially going to the Haram Sharif, I was wondering, you know, this place is so spiritual and so important to uh, 1.2 billion people. Like, where are those people? They should be supporting the people here who are uh, holding on to this and, uh, you know, giving them uh, moral support, giving them economic support, and just being here in their presence. Uh and but you see that people are very committed to they're not going to let go of this place they're not going to let go of uh, their connection to this land and you know there are people who offer palestinians living in east jerusalem for example in the old city tens of millions of dollars to move out of their homes that their families have lived in for generations really compelling offers financially people won't take it they're very committed to this uh they're not going anywhere and uh you know it's just uh if you go to hebron too people are living in homes that uh, they're not even allowed walking on the main roads outside their homes. Their the doorways have been welded shut by the military, uh, but they don't leave. They're not going to leave, and nothing is going to make them leave. No sweet offer is going to make them leave, and certainly no bad offer is going to make them leave. Uh, so people just have to – either there's three options. There's genocide against them, there's ethnic cleansing, or there's equality. And I think that it has to be equality, and maybe the world is tired of hearing about it, but – if they're tired of hearing about it, they should put pressure for a real just peace that all sides can live with, not 
uh, putting a gun to the head and trying to make the Palestinians just lie down. You brought up an interesting point, just something that I've been kind of struggling with for many years, like how could 1.2 billion people or however many Muslims there are in the world yep. just turn a blind eye? And I think uh, it, the situation of Palestine is a reflection of this. Our indifference is uh, in this conflict is an extension of our countries uh, like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and all these uh, Muslim countries who are really looking out for their own self-interest. And I think one of the, the problems, and I think why, why a lot of people are looking to the rhetoric, at least over Erdogan, of why he's um, you know passionate about the Palestinian cause and they're kind of lining behind him is because he has an interest or uh, he's displaying a uh, an Islamic interest he's saying or a Muslim interest like hey these are issues that are things that people are passionate about and uh, right now we don't see any country in the world really having that kind of uh, backbone in at least being vocal about it yeah and if I can just add on to what you're saying Sam um, I think that uh there's a there's only a few solutions and i think the most foolproof solution is that the people you know the arabs used to have a saying they say people are on the religion of their rulers you know and people are not going to move that's why we only see people like yourself you know may allah bless you and people like you know we actually had mufti wasim khan and also and he went to Palestine and talked about Palestine. But we have small groups of people that go to Palestine and talk about it to raise awareness. But that's not, that's raising awareness. It's awesome. And I think we should all do that. And I'm not saying, I'm not knocking anyone for doing that. But I think that if we're talking solution, the only way that this can be dealt with, I think it's a lot bigger than the discussions have been in the past. I think it's an international discussion. It takes a lot more than Erdogan to say, and I'm not knocking your point, it takes a lot more than Erdogan to just be, uh, you know, despise the situation. You have to have an entity or a force or a, 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 somebody, whether they're weak or strong, it doesn't matter, Well, to, least, to, yeah. to actually say, hey, listen, these are our brothers and sisters, and we are, you know, going to, we not even bold enough to say, hey, we're going to give them their state back of which they deserve, and you can be uh, you can share land with them, but you're not going to be citizens well, because you have taken this place illegally. And uh, that's what I'm saying. Uh, the reason I'm painting this picture, I'm sorry to keep rambling on, is because I think that's the seriousness of this matter, is that you have to have an entity that tells the Israelis, hey, listen, this is not your land. You, you're an illegal establishment that has stolen this land. You can live here peacefully, but you're not going to be a citizen of this country, and we're giving this back to the Palestinians. That means all the big brothers, including the United States and Russia, as you mentioned, and other entities are not going to be happy with that statement. Yeah. And nobody in the Muslim world, or any other country for that matter, is willing to do that. Yeah. Well, the, the problem is that Erdogan is not even taking an initial step of like breaking trade ties or, or you know stopping uh, or you know, increasing tariffs on Israeli products or anything, you know, it seems like, well, you're just, you're just saying it's just hot air, really. And all you're doing is just playing to a certain crowd that it's, it, it, it is playing to a certain crowd. At least I think it should be a little stronger. So at least it gives people some hope, but he's kind of playing this balancing act, you know, and he has to, for whatever reason, but you know, you can do that 
and it's not really going to solve the problem though, right? Yeah. Uh, it may empower some of us. I know back in the day when Erdogan was talking all this big game, I was like, yeah, this guy is awesome. But then after a while, it just, you know, he, he's he's uh, a part of a system, unfortunately, that's not going to let him grow too much more than he is right now. Um, but, you know, I've been rambling on for a long time. I vented. <laughs> I ranted what I needed to say. <laughs> Again, you, those are my personal views. What are your views. thoughts on Turkey? What's that? Uh, I mean, it's he complicated. There's a uh... hello. No, no, you're no, here. no, nothing. Go ahead. Oh, we thought you uh, hung you up. You know, on I us. think that. Uh... Oh no, no, I'm still here. I mean, uh, like domestically or internationally. Um, just internationally hello? and how they how they're uh, dealing with uh, Israel and some of the rhetoric that's coming from Erdogan. Um, is there any? Should we have any faith in well, him actually following up on his on his words, or is it just you know him playing to a certain crowd? You know, I think if they did put tariffs on Israel or cut ties with Israel, I'm not sure that that would really accomplish much. Uh, if you look like Pakistan, for instance, has no ties with Israel. Uh, I don't think Israel is really harmed by that. I don't think that they really care. Uh, same with Iran. Iran sort of tries to antagonize Israel. Uh, Militarily, I don't think that really, in my opinion, I don't think it's helping anybody, including the Palestinians. I will say that Turkey, they have ties with Israel. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem, the two foreign groups of foreign communities I saw a lot in East Jerusalem were Turks and British Pakistanis. Because Britain and Turkey have some sort of visa reciprocity with Israel, so Muslims from those countries can go. And it makes a big difference because they go and they shop at the Palestinian stores, which no one else shops at. They're sort of around uh, Al-Aqsa. They're there in numbers of people so that uh, you can't really, to some degree, you know, people, people are bullying Palestinians. There's some witnesses to that. And they have an impact on the economic life of people, a material impact. And I, I do understand the calls to boycott and uh cut economic ties. But that's actually been going on for a very long time, since the yeah. beginning of Israel's creation, no one's had any economic ties with that. Um, and I think that if you're talking about actually empowering the Palestinians, you know, there are ways you should maybe in, invest in Palestine or support, you know, their businesses or uh, help defend them with your body against uh, being bullied or being uh, harassed uh, and despite your presence and being witness to it. So, you know, I don't really know about the government of Turkey per se, but I will say that people definitely very strongly support Palestinians. And I think that the their economic impact that they have by is very important because, you know, if people are poor and they can't even, they don't know where the next meal is coming from, they can't really resist oppression either. They need yeah, to be empowered in every way. So, yeah. Well, uh, you had a recent article about the, the looming death of democracy and how democracy is slowly dying around the world. I want to uh, shift the discussion a little bit towards that article because I found some of the things that you're talking about in it really profound in the sense how technology is kind of aiding the, the, the destruction of democracy. And I mean, nobody who's informed can really argue against it in the sense, I mean, when you are kind of following... The, the the Trump regime and you're following some of the events that are happening around the world, you're like, yeah, that's pretty obvious. But I think people don't really 
understand the scale of it per se. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, what uh, about that article that you wrote? Yeah, like, uh, you know, it's very good. It, people really fetishize democracy uh, full stop and they seem to think it's perfect. Uh, the idea that democracy has no flaws and no serious flaws would be uh, completely absurd to any classical political thinker. Uh, they Everyone recognizes that democracy has serious flaws. It may be the least bad system of all of the systems, but, uh, you know, it, there's the passions of people and the masses are very uh, tempestuous and they're very hard to control. And what we're seeing now, and we saw a little taste of it in the last election, and we're going to see more of it than we could ever imagine, is that this information environment that we talked about, this deluge of information uh, coming from all sides of questionable quality uh, that we're now experiencing with the internet and that we touched upon at the start of the podcast, uh, you know, the average person's brain is not built to compute this, not built to be able to handle this much. And you ask people to make a rational choice about uh, an election, it's hard enough when, you know, you know the facts. When you don't know the facts and you don't know where this information is coming from, it's almost impossible. And the things we're going to see in the next couple of years uh, in terms of fake news, fake videos, fake uh, algorithms, uh, impersonating public figures. I don't see how the average person is going to be able to make an informed choice unless it's some serious change in how technology is implemented. Uh, and what you may see is we may continue having elections, but uh, you may see that the actual power in society is no longer – in elections, it's uh, in private sources in Silicon Valley. Uh, it's concentrated in, you know, foreign capital. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not optimistic that democracy, as we know, it's going to survive. So, a lot of folks say America, though, like, isn't really a democracy; it's a republic. And so, like, yeah, what does that even mean? Yes, yeah, true. There were checks and balances imposed to protect. Uh, like the Electoral College was one of the big uh, – intended to be one of the big checks on pure democracy. But if you look at the way things are – things function today, like the Electoral College has been pretty much hollowed out of its uh, – the purpose it was supposed to serve. It's pretty much unthinkable that the delegates would vote against uh, how the electorate chose. And you know people were hoping for that in the last election. It didn't really happen. Uh, so the Republican aspects of the government have sort of been degraded over time. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. the thing is, uh, like, you're just going to see it with people are not able to even get to the first question of how do you make an informed choice. And doing that's hard enough in a functioning democracy. And I don't think we're going to stop having elections. We're just going to see that you know, the elections mean less and less. Well, I, I think one of the main things that the founders or the founding fathers of this country didn't really factor in was the influence of capitalism on democracy, right? Because democracy really adopted capitalism as its backbone, right? In the way um, uh, business is conducted in the world and um, commerce is... Uh, Just instated, the way we view right? money and assets, yeah. Right, and uh, I think... the. I think capitalism literally absorbed democracy 
and um, allowed powerful people to, you know, gain foothold in the democratic system and uh, really guide uh, the course of actions that uh, politicians take. So it's really, you know, the the the, yeah. the, the creed of capitalism is what like greed is good. You know, make sure that um, your your well, interests you know, are taken care of. Go ahead. You know what happens is that, you know, capitalism creates elites, economic elites in society. And when those elites, you know, they determine that they have shared interests and then they organize themselves. And in a democracy, there are certain institutions which are for the public good and they're supposed to be uh, neutral arbiters of the public good and exist for the benefit of all of us. When elites organize and capture those institutions and subvert their purposes and turn them into vehicles for their own empowerment, uh, you know, they kind of hollow out the democracy from the inside. And when the ordinary people are not similarly organized and they're all sort of scattered and they don't really perceive their what their interests are and they're not uh, in a position to act on that, uh, they don't really have any response. So in the United States, you have institutions like Congress and uh, – others which are supposed to be vehicles for public will, uh, but except in name, they no longer are because elites have captured them. Elites have organized themselves and they have uh, subverted them. And when that happens, you know, there's a very good book about this by uh, Francis Fukuyama called Political Order and Political Decay. There's not really any going back. Like it's very difficult aside from some sort of shocking revolutionary situation, uh, which doesn't seem very likely for these dead institutions to be brought back to life. There's just vehicles for people's immiseration and things just decay over time. And I think the United States is in a state of institutional decay. And that doesn't mean that the future means we're all going to be, uh, you know, starving and uh, living in some sort of apocalypse. But I do think that, you know, you've already seen it. And, you know, there's a term called zombie democracy where the people are not involved anymore. They're just sort of like spectators watching a play and sometimes they'll clap and sometimes they'll boo. Uh, and that's sort of what exists today. And it's because our institutions have been captured by people who are very rich and who are able to perceive their own class interests much better than ordinary people are. Yeah, and I remember from your article, you know, um, how you were talking about the book How Democracy Ends uh, by David, how do you pronounce the name, Runciman? Yeah, Runciman. Yeah, and you, um, you were mentioning something that I, I think that a lot of people are kind of catching on to now, but they don't know um, how to deal with it is that, it's become a type of the, the politics and, and democracy has become a type of entertainment now. Right. And, um, and you were mentioning how Barack Obama was kind of seen as a celebrity president, right. Lacing some of his words with some type of religious, religious, religiosity, excuse me. And then literally you have an entertainer entertainer like Trump who gets into office and it continues uh, to be more and more of a, a spectator sport, um, you know, and that was that the politics has, has become become a spectator sport in this democracy, and you know the the sorry, go ahead. No, no, and, and I like the how you use the word pageant. It just reminded me that it is literally like yeah. a pageant, and who can be the best performer yeah. 
in, in this acting role and, uh, right. who, and who can keep the people entertained. Whether we like it or not, the type of entertainment that Trump chose was inciting certain type of uh, uh, feelings in people of love, some people who love him and some people who hated him. And that became just watch the people fight over this team now, right? Um, and that's kind of how I see it too, man. It, it, that's how it has become now. You know, in this environment where people are so distracted by different sources of information, he was able to do the most important thing that whether you liked him or you hated him, he had your attention. Yeah, and he cut exactly. all the things going on and he still to this day does it. Even today, like yeah. he has everyone's attention, everything he does. Yep. So Even, he's not afraid of having all those videos up about him, about him and Putin. And he's, I think he's loving all this attention, man. As long as you are thinking about him, and not the other person, he's actually winning. That's And it's, people have not figured out any way to get past this. And I don't know if we're going to be able to get past it. Yeah. It is the most important book, well, one of the most important books I've ever read, and I mentioned in the article, is this book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. It was written in the 80s, before the internet even. It was written about uh, TV news, but I think it's still very, it's very apt. Uh, it says that, you know, in the previous era, it's like, in an era before television, let's say, when you were thinking about who's going to lead the country, you were seeing probably written scripts. Like you would rarely ever see the person who led the country. They'd just be someone you read about in the newspaper. Maybe mm. you'd read their proclamations or read something that somebody, you know, what they put together as their platform. And you think about them in that way. So you wouldn't really know if they're good looking or if they're how they spoke or you know, how they dress, you just know about the bare facts of what they're proposing. With the advent of television, this whole new dynamic came into play. Well, when you're looking at someone on television, the most important thing is not even the substance of what they're saying. The most important thing is how charismatic they are, how they say things, and the medium itself is very much geared towards entertainment. So the person you're seeing, if they're not entertaining on a screen or they're not engaging on a screen or charismatic on a screen, it doesn't matter what they're saying. If they're like mumbling and they're unattractive and ruffled, you're going to dismiss them for the next person. So Barack Obama and Donald Trump, too. yeah, they, what they have in common, I think Trump is extremely charismatic. He has a very unorthodox charisma, but even during the election campaign, we're all laughing at his antics, uh, you know, the way he's insulting the other guys like he's a wrestler calling them little rubio or whatever L low energy uh, jeb, <laughs> low energy jeb. Yeah. yeah it's very funny he's a very funny person and he sort of got that you know wwe persona and it really worked and obama was in a sense he was entertaining not in the sense that he was making you laugh but he was like you know the hero in a movie who came and the savior and he just made you feel like you know this guy is just inspiring me so much and he's just such a great orator. He speaks so well. And it didn't even matter what he was saying. What he was saying was not that remarkable. And when he governed, it wasn't that remarkable. He just had a very remarkable way of saying it. He ended up being just a pretty much standard uh, Democratic president. And, uh, you know, someone who's boring, if they're offering you the best thing in the world, if they're boring today, no one's going to listen to them. So you have to be entertained. And that, that, that book really crazy. explained how this dynamic came into play, that the most important thing that people want everything is entertainment. Yeah. I just see that, you know, he, he died before the internet even became a thing, but he foresee, right. foresaw 
the sort of mess we're in today. I dabbled in that book a little. That's like Neil Postman, right? Um, I think his son wrote a forward yeah, to his latest edition, and I think because in the eighties it was Ronald Reagan. You know, you know, because Reagan was like the Hollywood right. president. Yeah, he, and you hey, look at look, look at the people who he beat. They're like boring old farts. Like uh, yeah. who was the uh, Walter Mondale? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, and Walter. then like, um, you know, I, I forgot who he beat. Who, oh, he, well, Carter. He he beat Carter, right? In eighty. Yeah, yeah, Carter. You know, in the eighty four is Mondale, and it was like, you know, but Reagan was just a was a slick dude, you know. Um, he, sorry, yeah. you know, he had a nice hair. But you think about the earlier presidents, and it's interesting. I just thought about this. It's like you know, you got like Mildred Fillmore, who was like stuck in a freaking bathtub. He was so fat. <laughs> like a fat dude would never win a presidency these days. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> a, a fat bald president say is unthinkable. It's never gonna happen. Yeah, it's uh, like <laughs> they look bad on screen, and that's what people actually care about. Yep, they, it's not that they're consciously that's what they care about, but their mind, their lizard brain is just. It yeah. just doesn't, doesn't trigger them. So, yeah. you know, if you don't look good and you don't have a, if you don't have a charisma, forget about it. And if you do have charisma, even if what you're saying is total garbage, you really have a shot. Hence so I pageant. foresee, Hence I foresee pageant. more. Yeah. yeah. So I was talking to uh, one of my employees at work today about like Trump, because uh, I was, I didn't really follow what was going on with Russia again. Like, I guess people are like making a big fuss about something he said. Um you know, I was more concerned about Ronaldo's Juventus jersey being sold out. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I asked my coworker, "You hear anything?" And he like told me a little bit about it. And I'm like, "All right." But I was like, so I just watched this Netflix documentary on Trump. It's like a five part series, like Netflix original, talking about Trump from the '70s on. I think they had camera crews like, well, he's been a public figure yeah. for that long, and he, this isn't like some act. That's who he is, right? And but the interesting thing that you just mentioned about his likability, people think he's like, oh, he's just like. Mr. Orange or some this guy or that or he just looks like they they always see these pictures of him looking like really like ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember I think it was the Taj Mahal Casino or I think it was that he owned back in like Atlantic City and it was apparently it was like a financial disaster. But mm. um, and so some there's this financial analyst in New York who like cr- critiqued it on like some news channel, and this is funny. So so Trump hits this dude with, with like a two hundred fifty million dollar lawsuit, right, and mm. then. His Trump's people calls this guy up like, "Hey, Donald says he'll like rescind the lawsuit if you um, agree to meet with him." And so mm. the guy says he meet, he meets Trump and he's like, he was like the nicest guy in the world. It's like I didn't even think this is the guy that would try was trying to sue me. And the thing is, Trump actually what he did was he real he recognized the individual was like a financial guru. He knew what he was talking about and he wasn't bsing. And right. he actually hired him. And the guy was like, oh, and he was like, even though I like knew he was kind of like, like his financial decision making was like ridiculous. He was so charismatic that he got me and I agreed yeah, to work. Right. He, and he, he he was working at some like high profile firm and he quit on the spot to go work for Trump. Wow. Even though wow. he knew that Trump had made like all these bad financial decisions uh, with these casinos and whatnot in the 80s. Right. And it's the same thing. Marla Maples talks about this. Uh, that was just like his second wife how like um you know i think she was on some tv show and he was like yeah he just he's just so nice and so adorable he's the most likable person i met in my life and i'm like dang that's probably what it is like and when you and you think about him is like when you see him promoting people right talking about people that he likes he just talks them up big time and and if he wants to trash you he just goes all in but he can flip back and forth like right 
Like him and Hillary used to be tight back in the day before he was in politics. Like they, yeah, I think Hillary right. came to his wedding and all this stuff. And you know, yeah, even yeah. after the election, he like right after he was like commending her for a good race and all that stuff. And then like well, finally, supposed to do that. No. Well, his base <laughs> yeah, was like, oh, lock her up. Do that. Yeah, yeah. You know, for him it was, yeah. it was different. Yeah, you know, yeah. his base was like, oh, lock her up, lock her up. And <laughs> then he, her up. so now like he every chance he gets, he just deflects back to her emails. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, I just if you guys don't mind, yeah, talk about what? the article. You mentioned something in the article to the degree of you know, uh, uh, people's votes because of Facebook and Google and algorithms being built on what people like. That people's voting is no longer going to be the voting that we see now. It'll be more of like an algorithm to convince people's mindsets of of who to vote for. Um, can you just elaborate on that point briefly, if you don't mind? So, you know, from your Google search history, from your Facebook interactions over years and years and years, these algorithms, the algorithms are created. So they basically, that's how they suggest you what you want to buy on Amazon or suggest uh, articles you might be interested in. And because the algorithm actually learns about you by compiling a profile based on every single little interaction you have, every message you send or every, uh, you know, link you click or whatsoever. And you know, these algorithms actually know you better than yourself. They can predict what you're going to buy. They can predict where you want to go to school, what kind of person you'd be friends with. Uh, what kind of girls you like. And what kind of girls you like. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, they can also predict, you know, what, based on you, this person that we know so much about, you know, what would be the best political candidate for you. And, you know, an algorithm can make you a suggestion, you know, based on your income and, you know, where you live and, all the things that you're interested in and your aspirations and hopes for the future, this person's platform is best for you. So you should vote for them. Now you could say the algorithm, well, you know, I want my own choice. But the thing is the algorithm is able to think more clearly than you are yourself. Cause you can't think about your whole life in perspective in one moment. It's very difficult for anyone to do that. There's emotions, there's uh, memory, there's uh, you know, all sorts of factors at play because we're imperfect humans. But the algorithm has an unblinking eye, which can always, uh, you know, can see more clearly than you can yourself. So if you were saying to the algorithm, you know, theoretically, if you were to say, well, no, I reject your choice, most likely you're making the wrong decision. So if you, the algorithm is actually make, able to make better decisions than you are, what's the point of you? Why not just let the algorithm just decide for you? And this extends not just to voting. You know, there are programs which, uh, or, you know, AIs in development or, being uh, discussed, which could, you know, choose a spouse for you, or it can talk to other AIs, which know other people and, you know, find the best person for you or find course, the best yeah. job for you. Uh, so, and then you could still, yes, you could say to the AI, to the algorithm, well, no, I reject, but then how do you know you're probably wrong? You're, it probably does know better than you. So, you know, in that sort of environment, when there's so much data about us and, you know, programs which are not in our control, know us and can control us better than we can ourselves it's like you know democracy becomes superfluous like what's the point of the event of democracy you just let the algorithm decide everything yeah and they might do a better job but not only that uh, and it's, we're taken, actually, it's taken the human element out of us completely you know our our we need to make mistakes we need to be human right and i think that you know this whole approach it's it's getting that way uh you know with everything but um, when you brought up, uh, you know, the lack of exposure that presidents used to have, just people in general, there's so much exposure on so many levels, especially for presidents and celebrities. Um, 
that it's just it it doesn't allow people to have a private life anymore which which was a human thing to do you know it, it was a human part of life to have privacy and not be so exposed and overexposed in your life because then there's no you don't really have a, a life anymore then right um you know in the near future or the foreseeable future we're gonna head to a world where there are like mini cameras everywhere that's like the yeah. next thing the internet of things like it's like imagine like every button or every door hinge has a camera in it so every single moment of your life is recorded on a video yeah. like of course you're gonna behave you're gonna behave differently you're gonna you're never gonna behave the same again your privacy like privacy That's is very saying. fast i yeah. feel like we're being stripped of like humanness and my, like we my dad says tvs are like like, like that now they have tvs that like yeah he's like certain he's like i don't know if it's cheese just blowing smoke but he's like oh don't buy like samsung because um you know they have cameras built in and they can see what you're doing. I know the Xbox was trying to do that. Microsoft's Xbox had like um, this camera that couldn't actually detect your movements, and it was supposed to integrate into games and all kinds of other motion. But um, it, it, what your example reminded me of was a, a show called Black Mirror on Netflix. I don't know if you saw that, but it's, I definitely recommend yeah, any uh, listeners out there to to watch that show. It's kind of a maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's not that far off from the future. Oh no. I don't think so. I think Black Mirror is uh, like now. Black Mirror is maybe underselling it yeah. in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, and I and think we're almost living a parody of of what we thought would be the, the dystopian future, but we're actually living it now. Right. So, Murtaza, before we wrap up here, um, I just want to tie back to the very beginning. Uh, a lot of kids listen to our show, like maybe in college, younger folks interest in getting the kind of field work you're doing. Um, you talked a little bit about how you got your start and writing blogs and whatnot. Is your background in journalism? Is that what you went to school for or did you study something no. else? No, you know, again, most uh, kids of uh, immigrant parents or kids who are immigrants themselves, you know, you can't really go into journalism or do whatever you want <laughs> nope. to do. Uh, so I studied economics, actually. Studied business and economics and I hated it. I was not good at it. But I just did it because, you know, the family working class background. I need to just do anything to get a job right now. But I always moonlighted as a writer. My dream was always to be a journalist. I love reading the news and, uh, you know, following what's going on in the world. I really admired the journalists that I knew growing up or that I read growing up. But it was never like a realistic thing because we were just working class people. But, you know, I, I always kept writing. And I remember talking to my father about this a long time ago. And, you know, I was like, you know, I just wish I could write for a living and you know i'm just like so sad that i can't do that he's like you know he's like i don't believe you because if you really wanted to write you would just write and like even if you had to do it in at night or on the weekend and you would just do it if you really liked it i was like you know that's kind of a good point so i just started doing it so that was many many years ago and i just wrote a blog and i was just you know i saw i had basically no views i had like five views or seven views but i was kind of happy with that i was like wow you know seven people out there read what i wrote that's like that's something and I was just doing it for the enjoyment. But then if you're really passionate about something and you do it consistently and you put work into it, people will eventually listen to blessing at the internet for all the bad things about it that you can actually get in touch with people and they can see your work and people who never would have seen it in the era of newspapers, they actually would see it. And if it's good and you keep working on it, they'll want you to write for them or you can uh, expand upon that. So what I tell people out there, you know, we really need people to write, need people 
especially with those people who don't really have normally a voice in the media to have a voice because media is quite uh, it's quite blinkered and they doesn't really reflect the experiences of most many people out there uh, especially you could say Muslims or uh, people from the Muslim world uh, so you know I would just say everyone should really read and write a lot and just do it on your own and don't do it because to be famous or to be uh, recognized or anything just do it for the sake of the passion of doing it and wanting to say something uh, and study and write and read and you know it'll have impact and if you're good at it you know, you will get noticed and uh, that, that that opportunity exists today and people should take advantage of it because a lot of people, not just me, who probably never would have had a platform before do have platforms now and that door is still open for people who work hard at it. It's unfortunate that the, the parents, like the old generation still thinks that way. I was in, uh, visiting my folks this past weekend and my dad and I always have this disagreement. He's like, and I'm like, you know, he's like, aren't you happy with how you what you're doing? I'm like, well, it's all right. It's boring. He, he was like telling me, like, oh, you should advise your younger brother to get more into IT. I'm like, IT sucks, Dad. It's boring as hell. <laughs> no, right? I mean, uh, speaking from someone in IT, the main thing that really gets you going in IT is competition against your peers. I mean, when you are competing against people who have better logic than you, you want to um, outperform them. You want to show your skill set. There's a lot of like rivalry in, in IT that kind of propels you in doing what you do um but other than pride uh in what you're what you're doing there's really um not a whole lot of other incentive to actually pursue it yeah my, my dad's philosophy is like all work is boring and if you're making money you won't be bored which is completely i, I untrue. agree with that you do i agree with that <laughs> partially okay not all the way yeah, it, it's true it, it, if you're freaking broke and you're just like for scraps you can't really yeah, yeah. then that's another I mean, issue it, make, too. It, it makes sense like it makes absolute sense it's but a, it's a logical we argument we need some people to do other things because uh as a community like if you don't have soft power and you know people recognize you or respect you you know it can really impact you down the line and I think especially Muslim Americans, you know, they're so disrespected that a president could get elected on a platform of literally banning them from the country. So even if you have economic power, <laughs> if you don't have the soft power, that could all be lost. Now, I'll give you an example. The Jews of Europe, you know, they were very rich. Western European Jews, Eastern European Jews, they were an economic elite. Uh, but they didn't have... Uh, they weren't able to penetrate and get cultural and soft power to the degree that, you know, they had to be respected. People disrespected them. They really targeted them. And then one day when the wheel turned, you know, something horrible happened. So, you know, for all the money you have, money can just go away like that. You're right. But what you need to have in addition to that, you have to have people respect you. And what, the way you do that is you have to have cultural power and we need you know, journalists and uh, writers, but also, you know, actors and sports people. It's all, it all play a role in sort of, you know, giving a baseline respect. Because Muslims in America do not even have the basic level of respect on a national level. Maybe individuals have respect, but as a class of people, they're a despised minority. You do not want to be a despised minority in a country 
that may one day have an economic or environmental disaster because the first people who go are you. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean to laugh because it's funny. It's, you're, just, you're, you're, it's just a really interesting plot turn, and I just thought about that. <laughs> That's a great point to close it off on. Um, so, Murtaza, how can people find out more about you or reach out to you? You can uh, read my articles on theintercept.com, but probably the best way uh, is on Twitter because I post most of my stuff there. It's at M-A-Z-M-H-U-S-S-A-I-N, Maz M. Hussein. Uh, so yeah, you follow me on there and anyone wants to message me, my email is also in there. I'm more than happy to talk to anybody about stuff we talked about today or anything else. Yeah. Sure. Sounds good. Well, st- stay on the line real quick. We'll, we'll wrap it up with you offline, but uh, we'll wrap it up here for the show for our special guest, uh, Murtaza Hussein. Um, we thank you for coming on. For our listeners out there, you can email us at themadmumlooks at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And for my co-host, Jake Amr, Said and Sim, this is Mahin signing off. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.